Hello and welcome to Quilt Achieviot's Markets Uncut podcast, your weekly insight into the topics and trends that we have been exploring for you here at Quilt Achieviot. Remember, so you don't miss future episodes, be sure to hit the follow button on whichever streaming platform you are listening on, or by following QC Weekly Comment on LinkedIn. I'm your host, Harry Gibbon, investment manager based out of our London office, and this week I'm pleased to be joined by Chris Beckett, our head of equity research. Good morning, Chris. Last week was an interesting one in terms of UK economic data, with June's inflation data being published on Wednesday. For the first time in a long time, CPI surprised on the downside, with inflation at 7.9%, 25 basis points below expectations, and almost 1% lower than May's print. Core CPI was at 6.9% due to lower petrol prices and a slowing of inflation in food prices with service sector inflation also slowing. This marks a change from what has seemed like the norm of consensus forecasts being too optimistic and inflation remaining higher than expectations. As a result of the positive inflation news, peak interest rates in the UK are now expected to be 5.75%. Sterling's rally against the dollar pulled back and the two-year gilt yield fell by almost 1% after the data was released. It's pleasing to see core inflation continue to fall, But Chris, why are we still struggling with high inflation in comparison to our friends in the US? Thank you, Harry. I think first thing to say that inflation is still a problem for the UK and actually it's still a problem um, for much of the world. And that's caused by excess demand uh, across some major categories and restricted supply in a lot of areas. So we had the bounce back from COVID in terms of increase in demand. We've had supply restricted in a lot of areas, um, either by supply chain issues or by the war in Ukraine and its impacted on commodity prices. That, as you mentioned, has hit the UK far more in terms of higher inflation rate and more persistent inflation, although you have to say that the Federal Reserve in the States are not happy with the levels of core inflation there, and there's more for policymakers to do on both sides of the Atlantic. Some of the things which are particular to the UK, um, I think in a lot of categories, the structure of the UK market or the level of internal competitiveness of the UK market causes greater pricing power for companies and stickier in inflation. Normally, we would say that we like pricing power. Um, the ability of companies that we invest in to put up prices and get away with it is normally a good thing. But if you look at the structure, particularly of um, Ukraine grocery market, UK energy market, there are issues. Um, And it's not so much if you look at the grocery market where inflation is the highest, um, food price inflation still above 17 percent. It's not a question of supermarkets getting excess returns. Um, I would argue it's more the um, commodity players and the branded consumer companies who are selling to the supermarkets who are increasing prices more aggressively and more successfully in the UK than they manage in other places in the world. Um, if you look at the energy market, we are the structure and the way that electricity is priced for UK consumers is more driven directly off the price of gas. And the marginal price of gas has been particularly hit, 
hit both positively and subsequently negatively on what's happened in Ukraine and sanctions on Russian supply. Um, the nature of the UK energy pricing mechanism and the energy pricing cap gives us a particular set of circumstances that has kept energy prices for UK consumers higher than in other European countries where there's greater government involvement um, and there's less of that free market move towards that marginal cost of energy. Thank you, Chris. That was really interesting. We'll come come back to some of those points later on in in the podcast. But um, but um, prior to last week's news, gilts in the naught to five year range had a yield of knocking on six percent, implying that interest rates were going to be higher for longer. Um, yields had a big drop following the print on Wednesday, as short term interest rate expectations have fallen. So following what you just said and, and what we've seen in the gilt market, do you think market expectations for high yields for longer is too pessimistic? I think um, expectations for the terminal or peak rate in short term interest rates, um, those the interest rate, uh, the bank rate set by the Bank of England, those have come down. Um, the more persistence of inflation means that central banks have to do more to try and counteract that. Central banks don't have an easy job because the the impact of an increase in interest rates in terms of how it affects the real economy and how it affects inflation is only seen sort of nine, 12 months after the interest rate increase. So they're trying to work out how much they need to do to bring inflation down to an acceptable level far before they see the impact of what they've already done. Um, if you look at the movement in yields this morning, when I looked, the two year gilt yield was um, 4.84, where a week ago it was 5.2. Um, but if you go back a whole year, it was 2% exactly. So the expectations for short-term interest rates are still an awful lot higher than they were a year ago because of that inflation rate, because of what the expectations, the expectations of what central banks are going to have to do. Um, it's not quite as bad as it was a week ago or even a month ago, but it's not a huge improvement. Um, and those people suffering from higher mortgage costs um, will know that all too well. You mentioned the, um, the time lag of, of monetary policy in the UK. Um, we've seen the consumer be quite resilient. House prices continue to rise, according to the ONS. The Bank of England's first rate rise was in the middle of December 2021. So a good longer than 18 months ago so is the consumer already feeling the effects of the interest rate hiking cycle or when will they i think um some of the population of the uk are feeling the impact of those interest rates and those people will find the premise to that question the when will they um almost insulting because um plenty of people who've had increases in their mortgage costs, it's a dramatic change in their disposable income. The trouble for policymakers is that what we think of as normal in terms of a family with a mortgage that they're making repayments to every month, um, that isn't as normal as we would think 
it is. And a lot of commentators like ourselves are in the demographic who have mortgages that they are they are paying back and the mortgage cost uh, is very significant. If you think about other segments of the population, if you own your own house outright and you've had a pay rise or an increase in your pension that's linked to inflation and the return in your savings has just gone up quite dramatically, you're doing okay. Um, Your income probably isn't matching the headline increase in inflation, but you're doing an awful lot better than people with large mortgages. So I think the pain is coming through. It's just not equally spread. And the pain of those for those people on mortgages, even in that demographic, isn't equally spread. There are probably about 700,000 people on fixed rate mortgages where those lower rates will roll off in the second half of this year. Um, that seems like a very large number. But against the whole of the UK population, 700,000 isn't isn't a lot. Uh, Again, if I look through the inflation data, the mortgage interest uh, component there uh, is uh, up 55% year on year. So a dramatic increase will come through to those people. But again, looking at the inflation data, the Office of National Statistics only give it a 3% weight in inflation calculations that show what we think is a very, very large part of what we spend money on. It is a large part of what you spend money on if you have a large mortgage. But that is not the majority of the of the population who've just taken out a large mortgage. A lot of people are getting towards the end of their mortgage or have paid off their mortgage completely and are suffering less pain. So I think to come back to try and generalize and answer your question, some consumers are feeling quite a lot of pain at the moment. Another chunk of consumers will feel quite a lot of pain over the next few months, and that will continue on a rolling basis through the next couple of years. But it's not a cliff edge of when consumers will feel the pain. Some are at the moment, but some people are doing okay. That's great. Really interesting, Chris. Um, Moving on to how these drivers are affecting the markets. Earnings season has begun. As usual, the banks are the first to report, starting with the big U.S. banks, which give a great insight into the state of the economy. So how have, how have the bank's Q2 results been so far, Chris? Um, we've really had the American banks reporting and the largest, better quality American banks have done pretty well. So Bank of America's earnings up. 21%, JP Morgan up 72%. Um, I'm not a bank specialist by any, any means, but the accounting of banks can be opaque. But you look at the improvement in net interest income, effectively the profit margin, the difference between what banks can charge you on what you borrow on your mortgage versus what they have to pay you on your savings. Um, that net interest margin for Bank of America is up 24%. And in absolute terms, for a Uh, the largest bank, JP Morgan, that net interest margin this year will be 87 billion. And they last week they raised expectations of what that number would be. If you look at banks around the world, generally they've got fairly low valuations compared to their capital base and the return on that capital. 
Um, that excess capital is what can come back to you as a shareholder uh, in terms of your dividends and capital returns. And the good banks are doing OK right now. Um, the sector as a whole is recovering from the devaluation around the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. And the banks that collapsed in the States had their own problems, but they exposed um, a greater risk across the whole sector. Um, when I, th I look at the UK banks, most of which still have to report, um, the pressure on their margins and the level of political interference um, does cause some concern, but that's largely in those valuations that um, compared to overseas banks uh, are at attractive levels. It's just difficult to see the catalysts to expose that valuation differential. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so moving over to your, your specialist sector, Staples, um, food retailers are reporting this week. You mentioned earlier that um, they've been struggling with input price increases. How do you think they've grappled with inflation over the second quarter of this year, a sector with famously very slim margins? Well, um, yeah, as you say, food retailers are slim margins. Um, we, we don't get results from the food retailers this week. We're getting results from their biggest suppliers. So later this week, well, tomorrow we'll get results from Unilever and then Reckitt, Benkiza, Nestle, Mondelez, Procter & Gamble later in the week. Um, I think the issue, if I look at profitability, um, your average food retailer, um, so Sainsbury's have about a 3% profit margin, um, Tesco about 4% due to their larger scale. These are not particularly high numbers. Um, food retailer retail tends to be a very high volume, low margin business. So the absolute levels of profitability of the biggest food retailers are still very good, but they're taking a pretty low profit every time you go to the, the supermarket, you just spend a lot of money there. If you look at what's been driving increase in sales, um, and then I go back to the inflation numbers that were reported, inflation in the UK, average food price inflation, over 17% over the last year. That's down a little bit, which you uh, referred to before, which in macroeconomic terms is a good thing. But for the supermarkets, it does pose an issue. People aren't spending that 17% more on food. On average, um, you're seeing retail sales for grocery up about 10%. And the gap between those two numbers are people buying cheaper food, so substituting um, cheaper types of food, um, or buying slightly less. So you've seen a decrease in the volume of foods sold and you've seen um, the mix change. So people buying um, cheaper ingredients um, and substituting those cheaper products. That gets you back to when um, in June and, Jul and earlier uh, in July, we had um, Q1 trading updates from Tesco and Sainsbury's. Tesco's UK like for like was up 9%, Sainsbury's up 10%. Good numbers, but nowhere near the inflation number. So there is a volume hit there. Sainsbury's tried to allude that they had broadly flat volumes, but it's difficult to see how some of those 
those numbers add up. What I think we're going to see from the results coming through this week, if I'm thinking about the suppliers to the supermarket, as we move into a disinflation re-environment, so prices still going up, but at a lower rate than previously, it's how good the top line sales growth of those companies can be when you haven't got the same pricing power and you're probably still losing volume at the same time. The last couple of years, they've been very good at taking pricing, um, putting up prices, and we are remarkably, well, resilient in their terms of keep buying the same brands, whatever the price, which is good for those businesses um, where they've been hit is not being able to put up prices quite as quickly as their costs have gone up. So if you think about raw material, energy, labor costs, um, their margins have taken a hit. So a lot of companies have plans to recover those margins, whether they'll be able to do that in an environment where top line sales growth is declining um, uh, has yet to be seen. I think it's a more difficult environment for company managements to navigate. The best companies will still be able to get the volume of sales growth, still be able to get prices to go up and manage to recover some of the margins that they've lost uh, more recently at the same time. But that won't be universal. Yeah, you mentioned resilience there and, and your sector is typically quite a resilient sector in turbulent economic times. Your wider sector um, coverage is booze and cigarettes. How, how, how do you think they've looked over Q2 given inflation where it is? I think um, I draw the distinction between the two. Tobacco companies, yeah, remarkably resilient. Um, it's a flawed product and an addictive product, but that addiction um, gives you that persistence of sales. They've had pricing power in a way that very few other industries uh, have had. If I look at um, the drinks business, particularly spirits companies, that's more of a discretionary purchase. The companies themselves and the management would say, you spending 30 or 40 dollars in the states for a bottle of gin that's an affordable luxury what we've seen in recent data more so in the states than in europe is a decline in the growth rate in sales of those businesses and i think that's what we see from the companies when they report diageo report i think it's the first of august and then we have to wait until september for perno's full results um they're not going to be quite as good as they have been i think what you're talking about in terms of resilience will come through more in the tobacco sector than in the drinks businesses thank you chris for those brilliant insights and to all of you for listening if you enjoyed our discussion on the podcast today we would love to hear from you so please review the show now, wherever you're listening, and share it on your socials, tagging us at QuilterChiviot. To make sure you don't miss a future episode, tap the subscribe button. We will be back next Tuesday. In the meantime, head over to our website, www.quilterchiviot.com, where you can read the accompanying market overview, as well as subscribe to our weekly comment newsletter. You can also stay up to date with our thoughts on market news, industry insights, and our upcoming events and webinars on our website or our social media pages. Finally, do you have any questions you'd like to ask one of our experts for our next podcast? 
Simply ask them via the weekly comments page on our website. We love to hear your questions. And that's it for today. So thank you, Chris, for your time today and all of you for listening. See you next time.